0: And I would just add that moving toward accessibility, (laughs) it can be an incremental process. We don't want anyone to not start because they're afraid of how long it might take them or because they have the ability to address every barrier. I always encourage the faculty that I work with to, to just start. Go ahead this term, make this improvement, make this enhancement, retrofit these materials. And then... Let's identify areas that you can continually improve, which is also a model in online learning is continuous improvement.
1: The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning.
2: Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning.
1: Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University.
2: Thank you for joining us and now, The Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad.
1: Tiffany, I I am thrilled to be here with you.
2: In reality, I don't even believe you, actually. I'm just going to pause.
1: That was my most believable voice. Come on.
2: (laughs) And that's why it's so strange. (laughs) I was going to say, this is how being on a podcast, uh, co-hosting is the only way I can get you to talk to me. Uh, But this isn't about you and I. This is about our guests. We had an episode last week. This is actually part two. If you didn't get a chance to catch part one with Ray Mancia and Barbara Fry, please go back and take a listen. Otherwise, it's nice to have you back, Ray.
0: It's nice to be with you again today, Tiffany. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. And Barbara. Oh, Tiffany, Brad. Hi. It's nice to be back. I know we're going to get into more of the details, so I'll turn it over to Brad for the next question.
1: Let's go ahead and do that now. What are some of the resources that faculty might avail themselves to use
3: I'm glad you asked because it happens to be in our book. <laughs> now, keep in mind, we edited this book. So we have these wonderful authors, what, 46 authors or something who contributed to the book. But there are two chapters, I want to say. 18 right? and 19. Thank you. I should have that in my memory but what what these wonderful authors did is they shared the training that they provide for their faculty so they provided the outline if it well two two of the chapters are asynchronous models for faculty development so they provide the topics they provide an organization here's the modules that we have their training happens to be self-paced, but that's where they cover the best practices, the things like if you're using a Word document, have you used the accessibility checker? If you're putting images in, have you included alt text? If you have video, do you have closed captioning? You know, so, and, and then there's also information about the learning management system itself that might be included in these courses. So I just think it's it could be a huge time saver for somebody who is tasked mm-hmm. with creating training for faculty.
0: Wonderful. And Barbara, I would add that Chapter seventeen mm-hmm. also shares synchronous faculty development strategies. So those might include a virtual fishbowl discussion or an online community of practice where faculty members convene and talk about. Uh, an accessibility challenge or a solution. So there are so many ways of going about uh, growing knowledge in the space.
1: How do you wrangle 46 authors together? <laughs> well,
0: it, I used the project management tool Airtable, and I've created many views to track our progress along the book. It took us several years. Much of it was completed over COVID. So yeah. We were home working through this book in in sections and it, it was quite a task. We had many authors submit proposals and we we were only able to accept I think it ended up being was it 23 or 25, 25 chapters, um, chapters and, and then we had of course a forward from Debodare so from Quality Matter. So it, it was a process And we had to do a lot of tracking, but we were so thrilled with the interest that this topic generated around the country. Many proposals came in, and we wish we could have accepted all of them. We're going off script here.
1: Might there be a volume two?
0: Barbara's grandchildren might not allow a volume two. (laughs) But honestly,
3: it's rewarding when you work with people who are such passionate educators. Yeah.
1: So how do you strike a balance between practical application and policy?
0: Funny you should ask, but Barbara and I have done a lot of research on this topic. As she mentioned, (laughs) the book was an edited volume, but it sprung from our work on accessibility with Quality Matters and a benchmarking study that had a three-part accessibility white paper series. And what our research really showed was that policy and practice go hand in hand, and that policy is the cornerstone of practice. So these digital accessibility policies, they guide the accessibility of courses and electronic instructional materials, but they provide the practices and the procedures and the accountability for faculty and staff to comply with the federal and the state accessibility legislations. In 2010, Barbara and a colleague administered a survey of Quality Matters institutions, and they were just benchmarking the presence of a policy. And only 13% of higher education institutions that responded to the survey had a policy. And because there were no policies in place, there were really no course development practices enforced at those institutions. Now, if we fast forward in 2019, we readminister the survey together. About a decade later, And there was much more awareness of the critical role that accessibility plays in developing online materials. At that point, 48% of institutions who responded did have a formal policy in place. And there was another 16% on top of that that had a draft policy. So that really was a market and a substantial increase that we think might've also been fueled by advances in technology. So we were happy to see the growth. And because we had a policy in place, we saw these policies, there were many more efforts to enforce practices and to disseminate best practices through initiatives like faculty development.
2: For our listeners, the book that we are going to continue to refer to is titled Guide to Digital Accessibility, Policies, Practices, and Professional Development. And we're going to have a link to that book uh, on the same link where you would access this podcast. So uh, be sure to check it out. And referring back to that, you cover some important keys for accessible online course development. And you've mentioned a few of them already in our discussion. What else should we know about the keys for accessible online course development?
3: Actually, there's a whole chapter. It's chapter 11 that talks about six keys for accessible course development. Um, Just for example, there's one that the recommendation is to appoint a senior accessibility instructional designer to oversee the accessibility of course design and remediation. Now, We've all heard of instructional designers and senior instructional designers, but then this person would specialize in accessibility. So that would be the go-to person on a team. It takes a village to to create an online course, but especially to create an accessible online course. So this is your go-to person. And then we have just already talked about the importance of a, a key is providing accessibility training. That includes job aids, templates, tools. Both of these keys and other keys that I haven't mentioned do require administrative support. There has to be some support. There has to be some money behind these. So you might want to include, for example, a third-party vendor or student assistants or interns. And those things, like I said, would require Mm -hmm. the support of an administrator.
0: Tiffany, you mentioned earlier captioning, and those third-party vendors are often associated with captioning services Okay, and do require money.
1: As instructional designers, you probably often hear this phrase, this course has to roll out ASAP. Yeah. Maybe this is what we hear. So how, how do you blend that P idea with making sure that the courses are accessible?
0: Well, in our careers, Barbara and I have both overseen design teams that include designers, technologists, media specialists, graphic designers, many types of personnel. And in that situation that you describe, we would advise the designer to really prioritize designing with accessibility in mind from the outset, Um, taking that universal design for learning perspective. From a management perspective, we might provide additional support so that the development can launch on time. Maybe some additional staff like a secondary designer or a design assistant. Some institutions do leverage the support of a student worker or an intern in those situations, but it's always more time and cost effective to proactively design a course than to actively retrofit um, an inaccessible course or inaccessible materials. So it takes longer, it costs more money. It's a lot, It, it simplifies the process to start with accessibility.
1: So I'm wondering if as as people gain experience as instructional designers with an eye toward accessibility, does that almost become for them second nature? So as they design the piece of a course, they're automatically thinking through the access mm-hmm. features that need to be included.
0: Yes, it, it becomes more intuitive and it becomes part and it's integrated into the process. For example, Barbara and I do a lot of writing mm-hmm. together and we start by defining our styles, our heading styles, our document language when we get started. We don't wait until the end of the process anymore. When we add an image into the document, we automatically make the click to add the alternative text. And we're doing those things as part and, and parcel of our process
1: process. Very good.
2: Going off script here a bit, but what are some of the most common mistakes or accidental, yeah, mistakes that folks make or missed opportunities when it comes to accessibility? We mentioned alt We've mentioned closed captioning, but is there, and I feel like those are becoming more and more common to see implemented. Are there some things that that folks are still missing that you would want to highlight here today? I think Ray just mentioned um, styles, creating a Word document. A heading doesn't
3: mean that you create your title, highlight it, and make it larger font and bold. (laughs) That's not a heading. It may look the same, but it has to be in the coding, the the behind-the-scenes styles of that document.
0: Barbara, this is reminding me of the effort and impact matrix that we developed, um, looking at what are low-hanging fruits in digital accessibility land. And I need to recall every practice, and we had it classified as high effort, medium effort, low effort, and this was a data-driven Process, But things like meaningful hyperlinks (laughs) and redefining the hyperlink to be a meaningful word and not a long string of characters is a very easy, low effort practice, Mm -hmm. for instance, but it renders a high impact. So there are practices that you could immediately engage in to improve the effectiveness, improve the accessibility of your document or of your course without necessarily taking a lot of time to do. So I would say meaningful hyperlinks is one of those and adding alternative text, reviewing those color contrasts to ensure that the color contrasts can Mm be read by a screen reader and Mm -hmm. users with low vision or vision impairments. And there are many accessibility checkers that can identify now areas for improvement, barriers to accessibility. I would say that developing a template is always a helpful starting point for institutions so that you have an accessible template for slides. You have an accessible template for a course. You have an accessible template for a document that already draws from best principles and that reduces the amount of customization that has to be done. Excellent. Uh, let me
3: add, to that our learning management systems now um, have checkers as well. Canvas has an accessibility checker. We have Ally, mm. which was um, developed by Blackboard, but it can be purchased separately. And we have it. So those are nice tools that even if a faculty member is not an expert on yeah. best practices, they can use those checkers. And they
0: even give instructions on how to address the barrier step by step. And I would just add that moving toward accessibility, <laughs> it can be an incremental process. We don't want anyone to not start because they're afraid of how long it might take them or because like they have the ability to address every barrier. I always encourage the faculty that I work with to to just start. Go ahead this term, make this improvement, make this enhancement, retrofit these materials. And then Let's identify areas that you can continually improve, which is also a model in online learning is continuous improvement. So we don't want anyone to not start because they're afraid they won't finish. We're always making improvements to ensure that the course is accessible.
2: Switching gears a bit, at Indiana Wesleyan University, where Brad and I work, we recently piloted our first course in virtual reality. There were some other formats that the course was offered in as well, in terms of, and there's a lot of accessibility notions that come with launching a course in XR or VR, AR. So what are some of the digital accessibility challenges and opportunities
0: associated with courses that are designed using this technology? Thank you, Tiffany. Just for those who are new to XR, XR is extended reality. And we use that term to talk about a variety of different modalities, including augmented reality, AR, virtual reality, VR, and mixed reality, MR. And as you mentioned, there are lots of challenges for students with disabilities. For example, users with visual and hearing and or hearing impairments. XR experiences rely heavily on visual and auditory elements, and it's really important to provide alternatives like audio descriptions or captions so that students don't miss important information that is encoded in those XR experiences. Similarly, users with motor limitations. Um, A lot of XR applications can require precise physical movements or interactions through haptic controls that make it challenging for students with motor disabilities to engage with those experiences. Designers can enhance the accessibility of those experiences with customized controls, uh, with voice commands, or other input methods. And then we've all heard of motion sickness. And it's certainly a challenge with XR technology that developers should be aware of. And they can design the XR content that has smooth motion, limit the number of transitions to help mitigate this issue with end users. And I'm going to pass this over to Barbara to talk about users with cognitive disability. Right. Cognitive disabilities
3: can be challenged because the XR is fast paced. It could be very complex. So As instructional designers, we would want to make sure that we have very clear instructions and that we're trying to avoid sensory overload. And then last but not least, you probably won't be surprised to hear that XR is a challenge because of the financial burden. Some students just don't have the resources, the financial resources, to purchase, especially the hardware that's required for XR technology. So educators just want to be aware of this and consider affordability when they are selecting or creating the XR experiences.
1: Do you have a sense at what level XR technology is finding its way into higher ed?
3: You know what, Brad, I don't have an answer for that. We do not have any courses include any online courses that include XR technology that I'm aware of at Pitt. That there might be some somewhere, but I'm just certainly not aware of them. Interesting. There, there's nothing in PIT
0: online anyhow. And there was some dabbling at some point in 360 video. Mm-hmm. Um, but the extent now, a lot of our simulations are based on Articulate Storyline and Articulate Rise. So we have not been utilizing XR as much in our space either. Uh, We do also use a lot of interactive textbooks for virtual anatomy labs and so forth, but we haven't moved into um, a virtual or augmented reality space. I can say that one of the guiding forces of accessibility is um, W3C, the, the consortium, and they are creating a working group as of 2021 to start to to look at accessibility user requirements for XR technologies. Mm-hmm. So this is, I would say, a relatively new phenomenon in digital accessibility, making these augmented virtual and mixed reality experiences more accessible.
1: One of the things I've been wondering about is, as much as I embrace the idea of XR technology and what it can do in the future, I'm wondering if sometimes we are substituting that technology for personal interactions, face to face, between faculty and students.
3: I, I don't know. I don't. No. I haven't observed anybody yeah. has over thirty-four thousand <laughs> students, so there's certainly could be a course somewhere that that uses it. And we have an open lab. In fact, there has to be because we have an open lab. And I know that those those technicians are working with faculty who are using it in their classroom. They might be using it in a face-to-face classroom. And my, my realm is
2: online graduate level programs.
3: Yeah.
2: We've um, had some podcast guests actually in the past come on and share different frameworks and models for XR integration and in courses. And Actually, even though that could be a threat of not having replacing face to face interactions with XR, there our arguments that it's best when they're paired together. So the magic happens, if you will, not when there's just face-to-face or just XR, but when there's XR experiences and then people come together face to discuss those and reflect together, whether it's a hybrid experience that we're talking about or face-to-face, like you mentioned in person, there isn't a lot out there about just online, what that looks like, but that's why I don't, I don't, think that there would be a lack of
3: faculty interaction because for the few examples that i have seen they've been undergraduate programs and the whole class is going to the lab to use Mm -hmm. the technology. there might be because it's an informal environment there might actually be more interaction Mm -hmm. with
0: the instructor not less and i think research has really shown that These three types of interaction, the learner-to-learner interaction, the learner-to-instructor interaction, and the learner-to-content interaction, they're all important to the learner experience and to online or hybrid learning. I don't know that you can substitute interaction with the faculty member with just technology. The programs that I'm working on also, some have a hybrid component. So students will be fully online and they will come to the university once or twice a year in some cases to do clinical experiences and assessments. So they do have nine day stints at the university where they come in person to complement the experiences that they're having online. So I do think there is a role for all of these types of interaction. I don't think you can substitute just interaction with the content for interaction with the faculty.
1: Great responses. I'm gonna ask our guests to put their fingers in their ears so they can't hear this question. <laughs> I'm gonna ask you. But do you think we can entrust them with the digital oh. to learn magic wand?
2: I think we're ready. I think they've proven themselves. I will.
1: Okay. Why don't you hand it over then?
2: All right. We're giving you a magic wand with the ability to change the mind of faculty in relation to how they think about
0: instructional design and or instructional designers what would you change? This is actually moving us into our most recent work. Barbara retired several years ago, but she never really retired. And we continue to explore the field of instructional design and instructional designers. And most recently we put out an article about instructional design staffing in the online journal of distance administration. And we were talking about this topic And instructional designers can be considered a third-space professional because they straddle that role of faculty and staff, and their job responsibilities are still misunderstood. So if we had a magic wand, we would use it to promote the idea that designers are partners with faculty and subject matter experts in course development. And they are a mission-critical resource in advancing higher education So that is something that we would do with our magic wand. And we are currently working on a survey for mentoring instructional designers. So if you're an instructional designer in the audience, we'd love to Mm -hmm. have you participate in our needs assessment. But we like to work in this space of promoting the professionalism of design personnel. Wonderful. When I hear you say
2: you'd use your magic wand to change the mind and assist with the mentality that instructional designers are partners, it maybe I'm cynical, but it makes me think. That means that there are some people today who don't see instructional designers as partners. And that makes me sad. So I'm not sure what they're thinking and how we need to replace that thought. But certainly, Brad and I being in faculty enrichment, potentially in that third space, I don't have any research to show that, that third space as well, where you come alongside and you partner with faculty in the journey, I can understand the desire to be seen as a partner.
1: Well, Tiffany, I think they can take their fingers out of their ears now. (laughs) And I just want to say what great, great guests they've been and how they have informed us.
2: Yes. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Barbara. You certainly are pioneers. And um, again, thank you for the title too. We are going to be providing links to their work, their article, their book, in the same link that you would access this podcast in the description area. So please be sure to check out their resources and connect with them on LinkedIn other social platforms. Also, if you wouldn't mind, I haven't given a shameless plug in a while, but please like and share the Digital to Learn episodes. We do this for our own professional development, but we certainly uh, could use that encouragement from you to keep going. So thank you for affirming what we do here on Digital to Learn, and we will see you next week.
1: Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn.
2: If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform.
1: Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future.
2: Always keep learning.